Welcome to an all-new season of the Between the Lines podcast. This season, we're bringing you all-new guests and all-new content. This week, we are super excited to have former Browns executive and current Monumental Sports Chief Planning and Operations Officer, Sashi Brown, for an interview about being an executive in the NBA and NFL. Next, we're diving into ongoing events in the NBA, including giving our predictions for our all-star lineups. Wrapping up, we're giving our score predictions and lock for this Friday's game. Uh, let's get into it. Sashi Brown is the current Chief Planning and Operations Officer of Basketball at Monumental Sports, which owns the NBA's Wizards and WNBA's Mystics. Sashi was also the former GM of the Cleveland Browns and lead counsel of the Jaguars. We're super thankful that Sashi took time out of his day to join us, and we'll get into it. So before your career transitioned into sports, you were a lawyer and went to Harvard Law School. I'm interested to know what inspired you to go to law school. Um, great question. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. And it's a, uh, a Valentine's Day today. I don't know when this will uh, end, but happy Valentine's Day to all the wonderful wives, mothers, daughters, uh, and uh, grandmoms out there. Um, but thanks for having me. So, so what inspired me to go to law school? I um, wanted to go back and get a graduate professional degree. And I was actually in line and had a job lined up at the MBA um, coming out of undergrad. And I bought my ticket on the Amtrak. I was living in Boston, back home with my folks um, after finishing school. And I was supposed to start on a Thursday, on a Friday for orientation. The Thursday night before that, uh, Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing took the players out on strike or lockout. I don't remember technically what, which it was, but nonetheless, and long story short, fast forward two months, the NBA kind of canceled its orientation program as it had that shortened season that year. And so my NBA career was over before it started. Um, here I'm circling back around to being in the NBA, but funny story. And in the meantime, while I was waiting for hopefully the strike lockout to end, I started applying to business and law schools and I really wanted to go get a JD MBA, uh, but I was really coming out as a liberal arts major too early in my career to get into some of the top tier uh, business schools. So it was get into, um, you know, some of the mid tier JD MBA programs or go to a top tier law school, my two options and ended up going back to law school. And I knew it would be a degree I would take a lot from, I had a lot of versatility so that's, uh, that's what pushed me into law. But, um, you know, funny story about how those things come about sometimes uh, serendipitous. Um, you were a corporate attorney earlier in your career. How did you go from being a corporate lawyer to landing the lead counsel job at the Jacksonville Jaguars? Yeah, uh, great question. And, and just technically, to be correct, when I jumped to the Jags, I really... I was the associate general counsel. So there were two lawyers in house um, and I was the junior lawyer. I was qualified for that job. And I think what appealed, um, what my profile and background appealed to the Jags was the fact that I had experience at a big law firms, which is great training. 
in addition to that, some of that law firm's work, which is rare, there's only about a handful of firms that do this work, maybe now a couple of handfuls across the country. Um, but at the time, there were really only a couple of handfuls that did work for leagues and teams. Uh, as sports has become increasingly bigger business, more and more law firms are doing that. But at the time, I was one of the few young associates that had specific experience in the area. Um, and then I knew the guy who was leaving, so he could vouch for you know my work and passion and commitment to uh, doing things well, doing performing high work, and then also how seriously I wanted to uh, take the profession and, and career move to uh, going in-house at an NFL team. And it was a great experience for me. Learned a lot and ran effectively all of the business side, none of the, the team operation or football operation, but all the business ops for the Jags for uh, almost half a decade. Um, after your time at the Jaguars, you became the executive vice president and general manager of the Cleveland Browns. How did you go from a lawyer to a front office job, and what were the challenges you faced in that transition? Well, um, my role, uh, even at Jacksonville, I began to transition into more of the team operations work. Uh, Shad Khan bought the Jaguars from Wayne Weaver, um, my second to last year in, in Jacksonville. And as part of Wayne's transition of the franchise over to Shot, his leadership team, including my boss, Paul Vance, uh, who was uh, very experienced in the NFL uh, for you know, probably 20 years or something like that, uh, just in the football capacity. And, and so the work that Paul was doing, I began inheriting. And, and Paul had been good about trying to get me more involved in football, you know, in the, in the year prior. So I had already started to orient myself to more of the, in addition to the business operations, which I was leading um, and primarily focused on, I began to take on more team ops roles, salary cap negotiation, roster strategy. You know, I would get involved um, in, in various arbitrations that would happen when a team uh, and, and a player might get into a dispute, sometimes a team and a, and a uh, staff member. Um, so, so it was a natural transition to me that was accelerated by the transition of the franchise and the acquisition of the franchise by Shad Khan. And uh, I remember Shad coming to my office and asking me that if, you know, Paul moved on, um, would I be interested in, in um, you know, having uh, an expanded role and could I take on and perform really is the question, could I perform uh, the, the work on the football operations side and felt confident that I could work with Tim Walsh there. Uh, so then when I went to, so I was one of the few um, front office people that worked both on the business and football operations side, usually those, there's pretty good separation between the two. Banner attacked me about coming up to Cleveland and Alex Schneider contacted me about coming to Cleveland was one that will allow me to continue um, you know, in that role where, you know, I was doing both business and football. And, um, and then eventually Cleveland decided that they wanted me to lead the football operation. And then I relinquished because, you know, the, the job to run the Browns effectively uh, was, was too big to, uh, uh, to do both. And I wanted to focus my attention on that. So I moved into a pure football ops role. Uh, and, and so that's, that's been it. 
Um, what was the biggest challenge being so high up in the brand's organization? And can you take us through like what the roles and responsibilities of a general manager are day to day? Yeah, I think they uh, vary. So I'll answer those, those two separately. So let me start with the Browns. I think the big challenge for us is we were a young group that had a pretty hellacious circumstance that we were inheriting. And we knew um, even the investments we had made in the things that we felt like were pretty stable weren't things that really would impact the longer term winning. And there were no short term answers. So in a world that um, which is public sports generally, but certainly the NFL and some of these top tier leagues, English Premier League, others, um, very rarely do people get um, enough time to complete what I would even call a midterm rebuild. And we felt like we had a midterm to long-term rebuild um, and we were confident in our ability to deliver on that. And I think a lot of the results from what we did are, are proven out and have proven out since. Um, uh, for the long term, but I think that that was probably the toughest thing, just having inheriting such a difficult uh, roster cap situation, talent situation, um, but then also culture, because I think, you know, the Browns at that time had pretty notoriously moved on from groups uh, very quickly. And despite the fact that they said um, they they didn't want to do that, that had been their track record. So, you know, having that trust going into uh, that group. Uh, with that group into that circumstance was was a tough one. Um, uh, as far as the roles and responsibilities of a general manager, um, you know, I think it can be different depending on the organization and very widely. Some general managers spend most of their time focusing on talent evaluation, uh, tactical strategy, and and I think that's perfectly viable. So free agency, amateur draft, um, you know, roster moves and in, in the NFL where you have so many injuries um, and, and you are, you know, moving guys along. And then also for a young team like us, where we were just so active on the waiver wire, we were just trying to acquire and get a look at as much young talent as we could. Um, we certainly did a lot in terms of player development and, and managing that and, and, you know, looking at, you know, opportunities to add to the back end of the roster. So, so that's certainly one role is, is, you know, talent acquisition. The other piece of it, as I mentioned, is, you know, player development. Usually you want your general manager also involved in having, you know, some, some real good discussion with um, your communications people and being the face of the franchise, talking to your fan base um, and, and, and also leading the organization in terms of players and putting the strategy together in terms of the roster build. Uh, the interface and management across to the coach is critically important or down to the coach, depending on the structure is critically important. Um, and, and then, you know, I think the other piece of it is typically your general manager is going to oversee and almost every circumstance, the salary cap situation and, uh, that that's critical to have a, a really good and almost a strategic level understanding of what the salary cap can do because it can it can be a weapon it can be a hindrance um, and uh, you have to manage that right especially in leagues where you have a hard cap like the NFL certain leagues you have a softer cap like uh, uh, the National Basketball Association and in certain leagues you have no cap like baseball 
So, you know, understanding that man, that fiscal management and salary cap management is another piece of it. Um, and then you hire, you know, a staff of scouts and trainers, and typically you're the one that's uh, that that's involved in in hiring the medical and performance team, uh, and and then also the the scouts at least, and then hopefully partnering with your coach on hiring the coaching staff. So it's a it's a big job, you know. It is public facing, um, and I think most of the smart teams, and this is what we did in Cleveland and doing here at Monumental, have identified that trying to have one person do all those things um, it can be somewhat of a fool's errand. And so you've seen jobs like mine pop up, um, or now you've seen in basketball, we have kind of a president of business operation, basketball operations, also a general manager. Um, in football, you're starting to see this come, come apparent more. And then in baseball, you've seen, uh, you know, three former GMs might join a uh, a new group, you know, like you've seen at the Dodgers and Cubs and other places. Uh, and that's proven to be successful just because the job is big enough and you want a lot of bright minds. It's hyper competitive. So uh, those are the roles and responsibilities. And that was my experience at the Jags and what I felt like was, I'm sorry, my experience at the Browns, what I felt like the biggest challenge there was. So you talked a little bit about the public facing aspect of the general manager job. So did you feel that there was a massive sense of pressure by the city or fans because of the Brown struggles and kind of that era and how did you deal with this pressure um you know I don't know that there was necessarily pressure I think the Browns have you know certainly one of the best most loyal uh fan bases that that I've been around in, in my life um and and so it was great. I think Cleveland as a community was great to my family. I think the, the fan base was awesome and, and super supportive through, you know, by the time I took over, we had been there 20 years and, and hadn't won sustainably. You know, I think they had one or two playoff appearances during that time, um, but, but had been, you know, had struggled a long time. And, and, you know, that had been frustrating for the ownership group and the fan base. It had almost kind of got inherited as, you know, part of the Browns culture, you didn't want to go to Cleveland. And that's very much what we set to turn around. I think for us, you know, the important thing was being honest about where we were and what it would take to, to move ahead and, and the smartest way to do that and the best way to do that. Um, and, and I think the big challenge was finding alignment in that. I think, you know, we, we certainly chose a strategy to move forward. Uh, I think people got fatigued with what that strategy was, although it was pretty clear internally that we knew the strategy was working, positioning us to be, you know, good, not only good, but, but really competitive, I think, for a long time. And I think um, even though some of that strategy was disrupted, they will be. Uh, so, so I don't think there was necessarily a pressure, um, more so from the ownership group or from the, the city or the, the fan base. Uh, to turn things around, but whenever you're in a competitive environment, your job is to go out and win every Sunday, or you know, it's, you know, every game that you line up and tip the ball or kick the ball off or throw the ball out, um, you want to win. And, and it is hard to go through seasons when you know you're losing more games than than you know you're winning, especially a lot more games. Um, and so it takes strong leadership and courage and faith and commitment to get through some of those moments and um, understand that there's a brighter side and a good you know, strategic plan to get there. So um, 
you know, I think that was the biggest challenge to, you know, kind of aggressively rebuild the franchise in a manner that I think would have some people scratching their heads on the outside, um, but that we had a lot of confidence in on the inside and managing through that with our locker room, with our coaches, with our fan base. Um, so, um, you know, that was, the, that was, I think, the challenge, but, but didn't feel it necessarily externally from the fan base or what have you, more than you would anywhere else. Every fan base wants to win. And the nice thing is, and, you know, a lot of the leagues, NBA, NFL, you can come out of the offseason feel like, you know, you've got a legitimate shot uh, because there is so much young talent impacting those leagues. Yep. Awesome. In, in 2019, you were hired as the chief planning and operations officer at, of basketball and monumental sports. Was it a difficult transition in management from in management from a football standpoint to basketball? And could you talk a little bit about what your role is with the Wizards and the Mystics organization? Sure. Um, and and the G League and Wizards just for gaming too. Don't want to forget those two. Um, but I, I think you know there was a recognition. First of all, there was a vision here at Monumental and Ted Leonsis and his partners. Um, think like. Um, I think more modern pro sports teams should in that I think they realize these um, franchises and the team operations uh, should run really well operated businesses with good processes and supported with the resources that we all have um, that that I think it really is reflective of you know the, the valuations and now you have you know, NBA teams supposedly worth four or $5 billion. You have NFL teams worth, you know, more than that, uh, baseball teams, so on and so forth. So it's big business. And, um, you know, I think team operations as a general has been a bit of a laggard in terms of professionalizing a lot of what they do. And, and my job here is, is to do that. And I think my background as a lawyer and coming from the business side and the training that I got in law firm, but also the ability to kind of uniquely pair that uh, with um, experience on the team operations side, including sitting in the seat of a general manager, um, gives me unique perspective from a lot of different experiences that, that are all relevant to what we're trying to do here across four franchises, the kind of basketball thing franchises at Monumental Basketball. Uh, so um, the transition was a transition difficult, not overly difficult. I, I, you know, we had spent a lot of time, I had spent a lot of time over the course of my career learning from other sports, learning from businesses outside, frankly, sport as well. Um, and so was familiar and have, have always been a fan of the NBA, watched and listened and learned and shared with, with colleagues in the, in the leagues and actually consulted with some NBA teams during my time off between the Browns and joining um, monumental uh, sports. Uh, so it wasn't a difficult transition. The other thing is I'm paired with Scott Brooks and Tommy Shepard and Mike Tebow, um, you know, here at, at uh, the Wizards and Mystics. And between those three people, I mean, there's got to be probably 100 years of, of experience, you know, NBA experience that I can lean on. So, you know, I'm not brought in here to, you know, have the, the refined, you know, kind of answer. Uh, you know, the versatility and I think what I bring to the table is, is a lot different than that. Uh, that said, you want to know everything about the league um, that that you're working in, and and so I've spent a lot of time over the last year or two, really focusing on learning the league, meeting different people around the league, understanding the culture, um, and and have made you know quite a bit of strides in that in that space. So it's um it's been great, you know, as I as I mentioned to you at the outset of the podcast, 
you know, my, my career was supposed to start in the NBA were it not for a uh, strike lockout uh, back in 1998. And, um, you know, obviously I, I took the circuitous route through uh, another league and through law school, uh, being a GM elsewhere uh, to come back here uh, to what I consider very much uh, our hometown here, one of my hometowns in D.C. Uh, so it's been uh, it's been fantastic and it's been an enjoyable two years here. Uh, we got to win some more games here at the Wizards, but uh, great to win a championship at the Mystics and um, learn so much from so many people I'm surrounded by here and hopefully contributing a lot too. I've got a last question for you. So there are lots of people that feel right. that the NBA needs to work to hire more African-American executives. And it's obvious that black executives are extremely underrepresented in the league. What steps do you think should be taken to achieve this goal? Yeah, and I, I would expand that. I think, um, you know, certainly one of the most glaring things is that the league has thrived off, um, you know, the talents of so many African-American players for so long. And yet the front offices uh, in many instances don't look very different than, than what they did, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and so there is a commitment to change that I ha will say in the NBA um, and, and Dr. Richard Lapchick, who is, uh, has known me since I was a child, um, run around Boston and my dad's office is at Northeastern campus, but he runs a uh, report card on diversity across the leagues. Um, and it's not a, a um, something that I think trans focus where, where folks are. And I would say that the league at the league office actually does a pretty damn good job in terms of both gender and racial equity. And, and we need more Asian American, um, more Asian Indian, more um, uh, uh, Hispanic, uh, Latinx, uh, African American, more women um, in, in our front offices. And because that diversity uh, gives great um, uh, value on two fronts. One, um, it's really hard to look at a, a homogenous group, whether it's all men or all women, or all, and feel like you really got the best people for the job and you're asking someone to you know, agree that the only people that could do this job are people who are Latinx, or the only people that could do this job are people who are, are, um, are women. And we, we know that's just not true in anything, right? It just doesn't hold true. So when you walk into a room as I have over the course of my career, and you're the only African American, um, uh, you know, in the room, you know that that can be, you know, a, a interesting experience and one where you, you know, you have a lot of doubts around kind of what the iron processes are. Um, and I think the leagues, um, and frankly, the unions are are both putting heads together as to try to figure out. And you're seeing this across, I think, um, corporate America, government, um, the public and private sector. Uh, where people are really starting to question, you know, kind of how we are hiring. And I think there's a social economic aspect of that. I think there's a racial aspect of that. I think there's um, racial, ethnic, ethnic, and I think there's a gender dynamic there too. That's all, all played. And, and a, a transsexuality, um, homosexuality, um, gay, lesbian dynamic there as well. Um, and we have to create environments where people, regardless of what they uh, bring to the table and who they are, as long as they're here to work and have the talent to perform the job and want to get better and want to work alongside people 
that they have the talent, you want to create an environment where that person can thrive, no matter what their background or skin color or gender is. Um, and, and I think we're all racing towards that. So what can we do? Um, I think part of it is just being honest with ourselves and being deliberate about trying to open up pools of candidates and look at our hiring processes and, and, and deliberately do that. I think one of the things I was most proud of at the Browns, um, and we had work to do as well, because we did not have a lot of gender diversity, but we had identified a number of uh, candidates who are minority candidates, including their current general manager, Andrew Barry, and went out to get them. I mean, we knew we wanted to have a diverse front office, so we deliberately went there and promoted people and developed people that um, you know could could bring a lot of that diversity and had unique backgrounds to bring to those positions. Um, and here at Monumental, I think we'll, we we are and and will continue to be just as committed and produce some of the same results. Uh, so I'm excited about what we are. We just uh, promoted Amber Nichols to our G League GM. She is the second female. Um, and maybe the first African-American female to run a G League franchise, the second African-American female to be promoted to GM. Really, um, really proud and probably underappreciated story of 2020, maybe 2021. I'm forgetting, I don't know exactly what happened, but the Marlins promotion of, uh, of a woman to be the general manager of the Marlins, I think is really, really significant to, to one of the four major sports uh, to break that barrier is, is is an amazing thing to see, and I was I was happy to see it. Uh, so we'll see, um, you know, what comes down the pipe. But the NBA, I think, league office does a good job in supporting. We all know that we can do better and will. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what the future will hold. And I think in you know a few years, when maybe I'm inching more towards retirement from some of these teams. Um, you know, these these opportunities should be available to more people, and and the opportunities and the leaders uh, in these uh, spaces will, will look a lot different and the environments will be a lot more welcome to folks of different backgrounds, but really good question. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It's great, great, great getting to talk to you. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, listen, uh, treat your mothers nicely this Valentine's day and uh, doing something special for them. The dads don't worry about they'll, they'll, they'll be okay. Uh, but uh, take care of the sisters, grandmoms, moms. Thank you. You, Thank you, you as well. Thank All you. Right. We'll see you. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye-bye. The All-Star Game is occurring March 7th in Atlanta, despite disapproval from the players. With all the madness occurring around the All-Star Game, we're crafting our starting lineups for the East and the West. Let's start with, let's start with guards um, from the West. I think these are two locks, but um, I have to give it to the Florida Alec here. Yeah, I've got, I've got Steph, obviously, the absolute beast. And I've also got Luca, absolute madman. Luke is a beast, man. He's my MVP. He's going to win it all. Win the MVP. Liam, what do you have? Exact same thing. Steph and Luca. I was considering Dame, but, I mean, he's just not putting up the same numbers as Luca. So, definitely Steph and Luca. You know, I thought this was a lock, but I guess not. Uh, I have Curry and Lillard. I mean, Luca's just a crybaby, you know. Um, I think that he gets away with a lot of these fouls. And um, Dame Lillard's just more clutch in general. Um, and he's a better rapper. <laughs> He is a better rapper. I got. I got to say that. But Damn I mean, English. English isn't Luca's first language, man. It's true. I don't know, um, but, but I so know. look, Damian Lillard is a ninth in assists, and he's like he's got. He's not. He's Luke. averaging more points than Luca, but yeah, he he's averaging more points, but Luca averages more rebounds and assists. assists. So, I mean, I think it could go either way. But Wait, let's move this... on to forwards. 
Um, Mike, I'm interested to hear your controversial picks in the West for forwards. All right. I'm going to start off with my boy, Jokic. You know, automatic lock. And then I got my boy, LeBron. But here's here's where things take a turn. I got Christian Wood. From, <laughs> I got Christian Wood from the Rockets. Listen. Okay. Well, he's been a very valuable part to this team. And is the reason why they've actually been winning games. John Wall is not helping. And uh, Boogie Cousins is not helping. But Christian Wood is helping. Are you saying that Christian Wood is better than Kawhi Leonard? Yeah, this is just um, blasphemy. No, I mean, listen, come listen, on now. I'm, come like, on I'm taking now. him over him. I'm taking him over Kawhi in the All-Star game. Oh, also, I think he deserves I, it more. I believe Christian Wood is hurt right now. I I might he, be wrong. He, he was hurt. I think he's I an ankle he's injury. Right Kawhi's averaging but, 27 points per game. He's an absolute beast. I don't see Wood yeah, in any statistic. For my forwards, I got the two two guys from LA. I have Kawhi and LeBron, of course. No other way to put it. Just the two best forwards in the West. I have Jokic, too. Um, as my center. So, should we move on to the East? Yeah, let's start All off right. with the two obvious guard spots. You got my boy Bradley Beal carrying the trash wizards. And then we got Levine. I got Zach Levine. No, no, no. Okay, I'm a Bulls fan, and I just couldn't bring myself to do this. Does Kyrie Irving just not exist for you? No, Kyrie yes. is good and all, but like he's on he's a, a great team. Kyrie no. Irving is so good. Bro, he, they literally have two losses he's to the, the Wizards. Earther. They literally have two losses to the Wizards. Like, Doesn't I hear not a better player. I got Bradley, I garbage time, buckets, Beal, and then I have Jalen Brown. Just Jalen Brown. What? That's horrible too. Jalen Brown. Kyrie Irving is the right, only bro. acceptable Kyrie answer. Kyrie Irving is trash. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Shooting 41%, he's a scorer. He's making plays on that team, and he's he's just the greatest shooting guard in the league. Oh, uh, all right. First of all, that's not true. Bradley Beal is, but nah, Kyrie over Bradley Beal. All right. Well, let's move on to the forwards here. I got my boy Durant, and I got Julius Randle. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> Julius Randle. <laughs> all right, listen. You can't like, say that with his every- great face. Every game I watched, he was just torching everybody. Like, I mean, maybe that was just the games I was watching, but you know, I just think his play style stands out. He's just a dynamic player. And he can do everything floor. on the floor. Well, this man is a got, literal meme player. I got, like, I got, I got Joel Embiid at the center. I think that's respectable. Mm-hmm. Did you just take? I, I don't know if I, I Julius Randle. Julius Randle over Giannis. I mean, Giannis is getting carried this year. By who? Chris Chris, oh my! Oh my God! Oh my this God. man is a clown. You're you're laughing in your room right now because you know that there's no <laughs> way that this can be true. Giannis, right. Giannis is a six man on this East. All right, for my forwards and centers, I have Giannis, Duh, Joel Embiid. Even though he's kind of a bitch and I hate him, he's playing at like an MVP level. And then I know I'm kind of biased. Jalen or Jason Tatum. Oh my gosh, bro! I'm not, Over I don't know Kevin what's worse. Durant. I don't he's, know what's worse. Oh, okay, the only reason I did not put Kevin Durant is because he's just missed so many games. He's and averaging thirty-seven and five. Thirty, dude. Over Jason Tatum, who's a bum. Okay. It, How dare you? Honestly, I take I take Julius Randle over Jason Tatum. <laughs> oh my god. This is, Michael, you cannot be serious right now. I know, I know you're trying to appeal to all the listeners with the and try to get your own segment here, but you're not Stephen Julius A. Smith. You're not allowed Randall. to have these wrong opinions. 
I mean, Giannis, he's in a league of his own with 28 points per game. He's, like, uh, he's, he's probably second in the second or third in MVP race. And you're putting yeah. freaking I mean, Julius Randle. Giannis, Julius Randle's a GOAT. Giannis KD and Joel Embiid are all in the MVP race. I don't understand how there could be anything else. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed right now. All right, we got to move on before I get heated. Starting this week, we are starting a new series in which we pick the Friday's games each week and keep our record. We also pick a lock of the week. We'll be keeping a record of its own. This Friday's games include Mavs Rockets, Nuggets Hornets, and many others. All right, Alec, let's hear your picks for the week. All right, so Nuggets Hornets. I mean, I like Lamella, but I'm got, I've got to go with the Nuggets. Jokic is an absolute beast. Um, Warriors Magic. I've definitely got Warriors in this game. Um, Steph's been playing amazing. Um, Bulls 76ers, you know I got to go with the Bulls. Zach Levine's a beast. Joel Embiid, he's going to win MVP, but that doesn't mean his team's going to be successful. So I, I'm going Bulls. Um, moving on to Celtics, Hawks. I'll, I'll respect Liam here. I'll pick his Celtics. Uh, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are a dangerous duo. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay safe with that. And that's actually my lock of the week, Celtics, Hawks, Celtics. Um, and then Suns versus Pelicans. I've actually got the Suns. I think CP3 and Devin Booker, they've been clicking. They're playing well. They're high up in the Western Conference. So moving on to Pistons Grizzlies. I actually, funny story, I, I met the Pistons coach, Dwayne Casey. He's a nice guy, but his team sucks. Um, I've, got, I've got the Grizzlies. And then Mavs Rockets. I've got my boy Luca handling John Wall and the Rockets. Um, moving on to Thunder Bucks. We got the Bucks for sure. Giannis and Chris Middleton are too much. Um, I've got I've got the Clippers over the Jazz, even though the, I think the Jazz are contenders right now. Um, and then Raptors, Raptors, Timberwolves. We've got the Raptors. The Raptors are pretty big force in the in the East. Liam, what do you got? Oh, I don't know if I would call the Raptors a force in the East anymore, but I agree with most of those picks. So I'm taking the Magic over the Warriors. I'm taking the Nuggets over the Hornets. That is my lock. I think Lamelo is just a turnover machine. Uh, Celtics over the Hawks. So I don't know. Hawks just can't play defense. Um, I like the I like the Bulls because I don't trust the 76ers bench. But I mean, Joel Embiid's just next level. Um, Suns over the Pelicans. Pelicans are just really young and inexperienced. Pistons Grizzlies. That was kind of tough because they're both kind of bad teams. But I'm going Grizzlies. I think if John Morant plays, he's gonna lead them to a win. Raptors, Timberwolves. Raptors are not a force in the East anymore. Uh, just not that good. Kyle Lowry is a bum. Timberwolves over the Raptors. And then so Thunder Bucks. That is an interesting game. I The Thunder have played all the good teams they've played very well. I think it's going to be a close game. But I think the Bucks are going to win. Mavericks, Rockets. Luka's just going to carry the Mavericks to a win. And then Jazz Clippers. Kawhi Leonard. Just Clippers all the way. All right, um, I'm going to start off with the Denver-Charlotte game. I think just Denver is too too good, and I don't think LaMelo Ball can do anything against Jokic and that team. Um, Golden State-Orlando, um, I got the Warriors. Um, I like the way they've the Golden State has been playing, despite that really trash game last night against the Nets. Um, I got them over Atlanta, Orlando. Um, Philadelphia-Chicago, sorry, Alec, I'm going to pick against you, but I'm going to take uh, 76ers. They've just been clicking, playing too well. Um, Atlanta, Boston. Um, I'm going to take Atlanta here, actually. Um, I just think 
I just think I'm a I'm a known I'm a known Jason Tatum hater. Like you just got a no respect on Boston. Yeah, so for that reason I'm going Atlanta. Um Detroit Memphis. As Alex said, Detroit's trash. I'm gonna go Memphis. Um my lock of the week, I have Milwaukee over um Oklahoma City. I just think it's just it's just it's gonna be a blowout. But um New Orleans and Phoenix, I have a surprising one. I'm going New Orleans. I think they match up really well with the Phoenix Suns. Um, I like Zion having a big game this game. Um, yeah, so I'm taking New Orleans. Um, Dallas, Houston. I got the Rockets. I, I'm a known I'm a, as well as Jason Tatum, I'm a known Luka hater. And we don't like Luka here. So I'm going Houston. Respect to my boy John Wall. They're putting up eh, in season. But Toronto, Minnesota. I got Toronto. Minnesota's trash. Um, and then Utah and LA. I also have uh, LA. Um, I think. I think I haven't seen many Utah Jazz games, but I think I've seen a couple of LA uh, Clippers games, and I think LA is really good. Um, so I think they're gonna win. I I don't think that Bucks Thunder game is gonna be a blowout. I think Laguince Dort is just gonna lock up. He's one of the best on ball defenders in the league, and the Thunder have played. They've played the 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 past three teams they've played all been contenders and they've all sent them to overtime and have lost by less than two possessions so i wouldn't call that a blowout yeah but i mean it's just so hard to like root against milwaukee even though i didn't put Giannis in my all-star lineup i still think he's gonna just dominate how how are you not gonna put Giannis in your all-star lineup well he's in my he's on my, he's my sixth man but it's all good i have something it's a little unplanned okay mm-hmm. but I, there's something i've been i've been thinking about and I think I just owe like Lamella Ball an apology for like trashing him like the entire first couple episodes, and he he's been he's been balling out on the Hornets. I think I think I don't everyone. Think you, uh, you go, you got it. All right. Well, I think everyone except overtime, you know, was doubting Lamella Ball and Bleacher Report. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. constant videos of him, and I just feel like he's got like a he's got a small build. I mean, he's tall, but he's he's like frail. But I just it's. I, I think he can be a like a good player in this league. I just don't think he'll ever be I don't think he's ever gonna be a MVP candidate or a Hall of Famer just because I don't think he has the ability to be a very efficient scorer. Like yeah. I can I can't see him shooting over fifty percent from the field in the season. He's just so flashy and I think that's just talent. Um if he wants to if he wants to keep that talent up, he's gotta work twice as hard. Um just because people eventually people are going to read the behind the back passes because that's what he does, and then you can just pull up from three wherever he wants. I mean, eventually people are going to figure that out. I I also think like this is not a very good Hornets team. A lot of yeah, a lot of garbage minutes, garbage time, and I just I think that kind of pads his numbers a little bit. I also don't think he's a very outside of the getting pretty good assists. I don't think he's a very team very team player, and I don't think he's a great defender. Yeah, he definitely is a sort of defensive liability. But what I will say is, like, while there were some concerns about his work ethic, I think he's pr- sort of proven that he he's gonna he's gonna work to play well. But like, how far he goes, I'm not really sure. Yeah, we gotta give him his respect for now. I also think his dad kind of kind of hinders his ability to succeed. I see. Yeah, I haven't heard much about Lavar. Lavar. I mean, Lavar's been kind of quiet, but I think it's just a matter of time till he till he starts chirping again. And uh, yeah, whenever right. when Lamelo has his first bad season, he'll get in there and say, "Let me play." Or something where's Where's like Leangelo that. though? 
Like, where's D'Angelo is gone. That's going to wrap it up. Uh, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Between the Lines podcast. We will see you next week for more coverage around the sports world.